You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Alright, welcome into the Hoist the Colors podcast. Hope everybody had a great Easter weekend. We are recording on a Monday. I'm Stephen Igo, the host of the podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Jonathan Wagner. Jonathan, how'd your weekend go, man? It was pretty good. Just got back about an hour ago from my grandparents, but ate a lot of food. And it was a fun weekend before with baseball, too. Yeah, it's always good when the Pirates can take care of business. You were able to cover... Saturday's doubleheader. I know at some point I'm going to get the days mixed up because it was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series with Easter weekend. So I'll probably say this happened on a, a Friday when it was really a Thursday. But just uh, I'll try to refer to it as game one, game two, game three, and game four so I don't get them mixed up. But uh, we're recording on Monday. You know, we usually record on Sundays or right after the series. But with it being Easter weekend, we didn't want to uh, disturb our family time. And honestly, with no midweek games, really not too big a rush to get this podcast out there. So we're going to uh, start probably recording either late Sundays or on Mondays going forward. Again, ECU doesn't play again this week until Friday when they kick off a series against Memphis. So no midweeks in non-conference play. We're going to recap ECU's 5-0 and week. They're up in the rankings to number 8 in Baseball America. They remain at number 8. They're number 9 in D1 Baseball. They're number 6 According to Perfect Game, for those that uh, follow Perfect Game's rankings, I don't think too many, but uh, they are either held firm or moved up to the national polls outside of collegiate baseball, which some somehow kept ECU at number 15. But that is a story for another day. I hate that poll. Um, we got some breaking news just before we came on the air, so we're going to lead with that, Jonathan, some big college baseball news that really, we didn't hear any rumblings of this, Um it just kind of came out of nowhere, and we'll just give it to you straight. We'll kind of discuss this to lead off the show, and then we'll get into the games for ECU this past week. But Kendall Rogers of D1 Baseball broke the news about 45 minutes ago as we record on early Monday afternoon. Uh, his tweet breaking, the NCAA will have predetermined regional and super regional sites in this year's tournament, sources tell D1 Baseball. The sites for both rounds will be announced the week of May 10th, and bids must be submitted by April 12th. It's April 5th, guys, so the bids must be submitted by this time next week, which is just insane. Uh, usually, towards the end of the regular season, the bids for to host a regional and super regional have to be submitted, so I guess it makes sense for them to go ahead and get the bids in, but, man, just kind of sent, sent, sent some shockwaves through the college baseball world. For those who are unfamiliar the regional and super regional sites are usually hosted by the top 16 seeds in the NCAA tournament field. So a couple years ago, I believe ECU was number 11, and they hosted that regional, and they had to go play Louisville, which was a national seed. And it was predetermined going into that based on seeding that ECU was a regional host, but then they had to play at Louisville, which was a super regional host, if Louisville won, which they did. If ECU won and Louisville lost, then the Super Regional will be at ECU. But this year, apparently, 
the sites are going to be the same no matter who wins and who loses. So you could have ECU playing UCLA in Houston, Texas with nobody there. Uh, this is just, uh, I don't really know what to make of this, Jonathan, about an hour after it comes out. Really very few details, which we're still waiting on, but your initial reaction to this really probably disappointing news to a lot of college baseball fans. Yeah, I think it kind of takes away some of the, you know, the fun of the end of the season, I think. And especially once you get into conference tournaments, you know, a lot of the times once you get there, you're for some teams, you're playing to determine whether or not you're going to host, you're going to be a top eight. And now I guess that's gone. I guess it's weird, at least when it comes to the sites you'll be playing at. So yeah, I was just shocked. I didn't really expect to see anything like that coming in and Man, it's just weird. It's a weird year. I hate that it kind of takes away, like I said, some of the fun at the end of the season, in my opinion. But there's still, like you said, not a lot of details out there. We're still waiting and seeing for a lot of it. But I don't really know what to make of it at this point. But it definitely, does. it's not very exciting news to me. So, yeah. Clearly, the NCAA is trying to, I assume, create some sort of bubble based upon where the tournament will be hosted, but I, I just don't see how they're going to be able to do that. These teams are going to be coming from their conference tournaments, respective conference tournaments, to the regional hosting sites about a week after the conference tournament week, and I, I don't I don't really understand the point of this. Like, I'm sure they're trying to be safe, and that's all well and good, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, here's the scenario. All right, Jonathan, so just to give people a sense of when this basically when they have to announce the hosting site. So May 10th, I believe, is the uh, the date for that. ECU will have just completed a four-game series versus Tulane on May 10th, and they will then have eight games remaining in the regular season, so two weeks left, two conference series, and then they have the conference tournament. What if East Carolina is announced as a hosting site on May 10th, and then they lose 12 straight to, to, to complete the regular season? Surely they're not going to be a number one seed so, does ECU go somewhere as a number two seed, and then somebody else gets to host as a number one in Greenville? Like, this entire thing makes zero sense, and the NCAA in general does a lot of stupid things. But, I, like, what what are, what are those three extra weeks going to allow the NCAA to do? Are they going to come in and COVID spray the entire city of Greenville and disinfect it? Like, I, just this entire thing makes, to me, zero sense, and... um you're going to have so many teams. Those last three weeks, the, the two weeks of the regular season and the conference tournament, a lot can happen, and a lot can change in those last three uh, three weeks leading up to the tournament. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy. I mean, I, I Kendall Rogers tweeted a follow-up and said, you know, they need three weeks to get a site certified from protocol stand, standpoints, and it wouldn't be doable. So I, I get it from that standpoint. But at the same time, when you look at the – baseball side of it it just it doesn't make sense I don't at least not so early you know give it a couple more weeks like you said I think you still have a little bit of a little bit of a gap there to where you can make it work but it's just weird I don't I don't like it I think it's we're gonna have some really weird situations in the postseason this year once we get to the regional time after conference tournaments are wrapped up and I think it's only going to get weirder as this thing gets longer once you get into super regionals, who knows who's going to be playing where? Like you said, ECU could be named as a host site and go be a two seed, 
across the country for all we know. So it's just weird. I don't get it, but I'm not making decisions. Yeah, Kendall Rogers did say, just so you know, the predetermined sites will be based on merit in late April. Uh, they aren't just going to be sites selected for no reason at all. So, again, if ECU is sitting at number eight or number nine in the country, theoretically, at that time, they should get a regional hosting site. Now, that doesn't mean they'll technically be the number one seed. They could end up hosting a regional with with uh, a bunch of other teams, I guess, if they crater the last few weeks of the season. But this could play to ECU's advantage. And, you know, if they're in the top eight, you know, maybe they get a, a chance to host a super regional, or at least in theory. You know, I, I just don't get it because what – all right, let's say ECU's a – let's say Clark Eau Claire Stadium's a super regional host. But then – ECU is like the number 14 overall seed. Then what happens? Like this entire thing, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, obviously, and I guess we have no choice but to wait to see those questions answered. Um, But yeah, Kendall Rogers also said, I'll I'll have more thoughts shortly. Here's the deal. Yes, it stinks that we won't have a normal postseason regional slash super regional structure, but here's also the deal. I'm glad we're having a full postseason with 64 teams. Let's not lose some perspective after 2020. And that is a fair take, but it does, it takes away a lot for a team like ECU, which to be honest, is fighting tooth and nail right now to be a, a top eight national seed so they can host a super regional and so they can get to Omaha. And now it, it if you're a player, you're like, what's the point outside of just trying to get a number one seed in the, in the, in the postseason? So a lot of, a lot of unanswered questions here and Cliff Godwin, I'm sure will say that uh, he, he's not going to comment too much on it during the season but I'm sure behind the scenes he he is not happy at all with this structure so we'll continue to have a reaction uh to that in the coming days all right let's get into this past week Jonathan for East Carolina uh a 5-0 week the first 5-0 week for ECU of the year as they haven't had any five game weeks and the first 5-0 week of in some time because those just are rare in college baseball let's rewind first to Tuesday against UNC. Man, that feels like it was like a month ago now. But uh, the Pirates won that game 11-10. to They trailed four runs by four runs on three different occasions. Four to nothing in the top of the first, six to two in the second. And then they were down 10-6 to in the bottom of the eighth. And honestly, I had already written my entire game story. I was ready uh, for the game to be over. Seth Cadell hits a two-run bomb. I'm like, all right, you know, it's 10-8. to They're not going to come back now. They bring in a new pitcher. Hit by pitch, then Makarevich homers on the first pitch he sees, 10-10. to In the bottom of the night, Makarevich walks it off with a single to left field. And a huge win for ECU when Pirate Nation really needed some good news. Yeah, you know, coming off of the Elon two-game series a weekend prior, we, we needed a win like this as fans, and it did not get off to a good start. You know, Carolina got off 4 nothing in the first and then we scored two to get back, and it was, I believe, six to four game after two innings, and you kind of think, oh, great, here we go again. It's going to be one of those midweek pitching struggles instead of a pitching battle. You have a struggle. And Carolina, when their offense gets going, they are tough to stop. And then as we got into later games, you know, they started putting runners on. Seth hit the two-run home homer. They put in Nick Pride, the pitcher who completely shut ECU down the week prior in Chapel Hill through three innings, and he threw two batters against against ECU this week, and AMAC sent him back to the bullpen with a two-run shot. And 
I was in the stands for this one. It was an exciting one to be at. I'm very glad I was able to be there as a fan. But it was one of those slug fests that you just kind of think, gosh, whoever you think whoever bats last is probably going to win this game as you got to the late innings. And there you go. You see you got their first three guys on to start the inning in the ninth and AMAC finish it off. It was a fun back and forth game the entire time. High energy. I had I had a blast. It was a fun game to watch, fun game, I'm sure, to cover at least until you had to start over on your game story. But, you know, I love these in-state games, especially in a year like this. I think there's a little added kind of thump to it. So it was a fun one. I'm glad ECU came up on top, and I think they really needed to because if they didn't win that game, I'm not sure they went all four against Cincinnati. Yeah, it was a huge momentum swing. It also taught the team uh, they had the ability to come back in the late innings against a good opponent and uh, it was important to win from a perspective standpoint in terms of how teams from the outside or how you know the committee will look at ECU. They're now going to finish the regular season 3-1 and one against the ACC. Uh, Duke is struggling right now, but they went 2-0 and oh against them and 1-1 against North Carolina. So at least the, against the four ACC games they played, uh, they won the majority of them, which helps. And uh, again, a huge, huge game for ECU's offense. And you know for the crowd that was there, like you said, they were into it. it. It was a great atmosphere. You caught a break by not covering it because I didn't leave till like midnight uh, from the stadium. But it was worth it. You know, as long as ECU wins those type of games, I enjoy writing them more. If they would have lost in that fashion, I don't think I would have enjoyed it. I probably would have cussed out some people leaving the stadium. But uh, it is what it is. So huge win for ECU to start the week. That propels them into the four-game series. And uh, the first ever four-game series for ECU in conference play, we're going to make sure we mention that as much as possible just in case Coach Goblin is listening. Uh, he really dislikes it when the media talks about the four-game series. And, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just a four-game week, but it's still four games over a span of three days. So your depth is getting tested. We saw that this weekend. And, again, ECU in game one, on Thursday, comes back in the latter innings. They're trailing 4-2, to two, entering the bottom of the 7th. And what do you know, Seth Cadell and Makarevich, familiar combo this week, step up. Cadell has an RBI double to make it 4-3, to three, and then Amac uh, hits a two-run bomb to left field, hitting right-handed this time to uh, put the Pirates on top 5-4. to four. And that really, ECU looked left for dead for much of the night. And again, two big swings in the latter innings allows... Uh, the Pirates to win, and I know, of course, we got a hit on the pitching, but uh, just another big come-from-behind win, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, ECU, they started off the opposite of how they did against Carolina, at least in the first inning, got up 2 nothing. They really put Cincinnati in a tough spot. They were getting base runners on in the early innings, but after the second, they pretty much just got sat down one by one until you got to that seventh inning. And like you said, Seth Cadell with another clutch RBIs double down to the left field line and AMAC with another clutch homer. And it's nice to see him hitting well from both sides right now. I think for a little bit, he was starting to struggle there when he was switching back and forth because ECU has faced a, I'd say pretty even split between lefties and righties this year. And I, I don't really know, you know, AMAC he's shown glimpses on the left side, glimpses on the right side, but this week he really put it all together from both. It didn't matter what side of the plate he was on. So that was nice to see, but we talked about it post game on Thursday, and that wasn't possible without Garrett Saylor. You know, Wisden Hunt didn't have his best stuff on the mound. First time he's pitched in over a week and a half, I believe, at that point. But 
Sailor came in through four perfect innings, eight strikeouts, got the win, and then Ryder came on to close it out in the ninth, got his save, second save of the season. So the pitching was – the bullpen was great, and we'll talk about it more when we get to the other games, but the bullpen was just completely lights out, near perfect every game this weekend. Yeah, in this game in particular, 15 batters spaced, 15 batters retired between uh, Garrett Saylor and Ryder Giles. So these, Cincinnati did not get anybody on base over the final five innings, which is pretty incredible. Uh, Wisenhunt, of course, you know, he was just getting hit hard. A career high eight hits, three strikeouts, which was a career low. So it just wasn't his game. Uh, and I thought Cincinnati had a great approach all weekend. Uh, you can tell they're a well-coached team, not the most talented team, but really just a solid club that's going to give – you know, they're not going to get swept a whole lot. I mean, they are just – they're going to find a way to scrap out a win or two every weekend. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like they've got some injuries right now, especially with their, their number one guy, which we'll talk about in a little bit. All right, game two on Friday. I'm getting the days right, Jonathan. You got off to a good start. Uh, ECU, a little bit more of a routine win. I thought this was one of their more all-around games of the season, just – Really good pitching, good defense outside of, I think, one error by Ryder Giles, uh, and then also uh, just a good plate approach. A ton of walks drawn in this game, a ton of free passes. They took advantage of a few Cincinnati mistakes, and they win 7 nothing to take the first two games of the series. But the big story in this one was Gavin Williams. We all knew, Jonathan, that he had potential going into the season, but to see him actually go out there pitching to the seventh inning 13 strikeouts, a career high. He goes over 100 pitches, 109 pitches, which has to be a career high as well. Only four hits, six and two-thirds shutout inning, just a dominant outing by Gavin. Yeah, I think dominant is a perfect way to describe it. I think that, um, we, you know, we've talked about it all year. You know, Gavin, for all he's been talked about as a starter, I believe this is either his eighth or ninth start in his career at ECU. So he does. He hasn't started that much. So we've always said, you know, he has the potential to become this elite Friday night pitcher, and we're finally starting to see that. And it's really nice to see, like you said, thirteen strikeouts, alive, seven base runners, four hits, three walks, and then, like we mentioned, another perfect outing from the bullpen. Carter Spivey came in, and after Gavin got through two outs in the six, gave up a single. Carter Spivey came in. And he shut things down from there. I believe he faced the minimum. I think he had three strikeouts. Yeah. And he threw two and a third. He shut things down. He faced he faced seven batters. So, yeah, he faced the minimum in his seven batters he faced. It's really impressive. Carter Spivey, he's another one of those guys, I think, we've just kind of waited for him to really put it together this year. He was talked up a lot over the offseason. It was nice to see him come in with an outing like that and just shut things off especially since EC's offense did sputter a little bit later in the game. A lot of their damage came early to the middle of the game. So it was nice to see just another dominant pitching performance. Yeah, and against a good Cincinnati offense. I mean, they came into the, I think, they came into the weekend averaging around five or six runs a game, I want to say. And so uh, to shut them out twice, which we'll talk about, uh, was a big deal. Uh, the strikeout numbers, again, 16 strikeouts for ECU pitching on Sat on Friday. There we go. I knew it would happen. Uh, <laughs> on Friday, uh, compared to three walks, is uh, is impressive. And so a really good day. Offensively for ECU, Josh Mullen had a couple of hits. Uh, Zach Agnos got the, the scoring started with an RBI double. we got to talk about the bunning. Actually, we don't really have to talk about it. I'll just mention it. 
but uh, <laughs> uh, because bunting is not fun to talk about unless you're Cliff Godwin. Uh, they bunted twice, I think, early in in Friday's game after failing to execute three bunts on Thursday, and I think that was a point of emphasis for Cliff Godwin. He was not happy after Friday's game. I mean, they kind of squeaked that one out, did not execute well. Friday, much better execution. The wind was blowing in, so they really had to do some things to move the runners, score some runs early. They did that, and then Gavin rolled on the mound. So they went 7 nothing, uh, 2-0, and a uh, pet peeve of mine, we could not write that they clinched the series because there were two games left. They clinched the split, which I guess is the best way to put it, which is kind of lame to say. So let's move on to Saturday. And this one, I texted you in the first inning, Jonathan, Man, this is going to be a great pitching duel. This is, you know, going to be a low-scoring, fast-moving game. And, and through one inning, it looked great. You know, 0-0, both guys, uh, Jake Kuchmaner and Evan Shaver really cruised through the first inning. And then the second inning happened. Cincinnati scores three, and they go up 3 nothing. And we're kind of worried. We're like, Shaver's on the mound. You know, this could be bad. He's their ace. And then the Pirate offense came to life. They scored two in the second. Shaver leaves, we assume, with maybe some sort of injury because he didn't pitch last weekend. He was on a pitch count this weekend. And then the Pirates just go crazy on Cincinnati's bullpen. Four in the fourth, seven in the fifth to build a 13-3 lead. And that leads to a seven-inning, 10-run rule, 13-3 Pirate victory. But they got out hit 9-7, to Jonathan. So, uh, you know, not good enough, right? Oh, yeah, not good enough, but... I mean, when Cincinnati's bullpen comes in, and I think it was Bradbury. Yeah, it was Bradbury out of their bullpen. Oh, my gosh. He came in. He, <laughs> that was painful. Oh, God. It was. He walked Makarevich, walked Moylan, walked Agnos, walked Newton, hit Ryder Giles to bring in a run. And then you bring up Riley Johnson. You know, he finally gets someone to put a ball in play. Oh, you know, grand slam, monster home run into right field. The Riley Johnson, he's small, but that man can hit. He's given a few balls a ride this year. He gave one, I believe, on Friday. He gave a ball to the ride, a ride to the or no, it was a game one. Or Yeah, I think it was, I I think it was earlier in that game, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It was the yeah, it was the fourth inning, inning before, and it was the second out of the inning, and he gave one a ride to the right field wall. And he th- I, I've said it all year. He's got sneaky pop. You know, if he can get a little more comfortable at the plate. I really feel like we're going to start seeing him become a more complete hitter. And it was nice to see Riley Johnson break through with a big grand slam to really break the game open and bring in four runs there. And then they weren't done. Connor Norby single another, he moved up and Cadell brought him in with a sack fly, but that was one of those innings. I was, I was glad to see ECU scoring runs, even if they weren't necessarily getting hits and they were being gifted to them. But, man, in that press box, I was like, please get this pitcher out of here. Because for the first probably, I think until Ben Newton came up, so until he loaded the bases, they didn't have anyone thrown in the bullpen. So you start to think this might not ever end. And thank God for that run rule. Nobody knew about it (laughs) until we got to the 10 runs. And then we start talking in the press box and come to find out, yeah, they let the coaches know last week. They let All the teams knew. They just didn't let anybody else know that there's a 10-run rule in effect, and boy, am I glad there was because I had a two-hour drive later, so I was happy with that. It saved you probably at least 45 minutes to an hour because Cincinnati would have just kept bringing in dudes that walk people, and it would have just extended the game even more. But uh, 
Glad to see ECU win at 13-3. Glad to see that Cliff Godman didn't mess around. You know, he brought in Danny Bill in the top of the seventh. He walked two. Uh, Cliff then brought in Logish, who threw strikes and got out of the, the inning to preserve the 10-run lead and get the unofficial save in my book. Uh, Nick Logish, I credit him with the save there. Uh, saved everybody. And again, another ECU bullpen day. C.J. Mayhew, Josh Groves, Danny Bill, Nick Logish don't allow a hit. They did allow a few base runners, but the third straight game, Jonathan, without a, a hit allowed by the bullpen, uh, which is pretty impressive. Like I feel like the bullpen days in the midweeks have been terrible, but the bullpen on the weekend has been remarkable. And maybe it's just a mindset thing, or maybe it's competition. I don't know. But they've been pitching their tails off on the weekend. Yeah, for sure. I think you started off in the fifth inning. Cooch Mater gets in, walks the leadoff batter, gets a strikeout, and then allows another single to put two on with one out. And Cliff goes to C.J. Mayhew, would become the first of two appearances on the day for C.J. And he picks up two big strikeouts right out of the gate. And then ECU broke the game open in the fifth. And coach went to Josh Gross. Uh, I'm a big fan of Josh Gross. He hasn't pitched a lot this year, but when he has, I thought he's looked pretty impressive. Still think he's one of those guys, those young pitchers that are still kind of working their way back and into full form. And then Danny Bill came in, and, and you mentioned it, but Nick Logish is my true MVP of the day because if they would have given up a run there, that game would have been prolonged a little bit. It would have been a long day. So, but yeah, it's it's like I said, I've been saying it all day. It's it's nice to see a truly dominant bullpen performance, and having the ability to go to almost anybody out there, and you can at least, like you said on the weekends, trust them to come in and give you a pretty good outing, even if they don't have their best stuff. Connor Norby with two hits for ECU. Alec Makarevich with two hits and three runs scored. Josh Moylan, three runs scored with a triple. And he scored on a sack fly, beating the tag. So uh, he showed some wheels. Uh, and Riley Johnson with a big grand slam. All right, let's move into the series finale on Saturday evening. And this is a game I got to see very little of. We had some friends over. We were watching the Final Four um, did follow Game Tracker for a lot of the game. It sounded like it was a really good pitcher's duel for the most part. Again, Garrett Shonley, I don't know how you pronounce that, Cincinnati starter. Um, when he throw, when he throws strikes, he's really effective, really good stuff, and he finished with six strikeouts in five innings. But the Pirates did get to Shonley in the bottom of the fifth with a pair of RBI singles from Norby and Seth Cadell, and that's all they would need, two to nothing victory to complete the four-game sweep. And again, sounds like a broken record, but excellent pitching for the Pirates in game four. Yeah, and I think the interesting part to me in this game was you start Tyler Smith, who hasn't looked like himself all season long, at least when he started. I know against Carolina in Chapel Hill, you know, he got hit on an early line drive back on the mound. Don't know how that affected him. But we haven't seen Tyler Smith pitch like we know Tyler Smith can. And I thought in this game to close out the series, I thought Tyler Smith looked closer to Tyler Smith. He gave up four hits, one walk. He only made it through four complete innings, but I thought he, I thought it was probably his best outing of the season. And I mean, he he did that on 57 pitches too. So he was really efficient and he worked himself into a little bit of trouble to lead off singles to start the fifth. But then you bring in Cam Colmore and what do you know? You strike out the side to get out of the gym. Colmore ends up going two innings after that. And then, 
like I said earlier, CJ Mayhew makes his second appearance of the day and he comes in in the eighth and he goes two innings. What do you know? Perfect. Five strikeouts, no base runners. You, like you said, it might sound like a broken record, but Hey, that's how it is. Uh, our bullpen was, like I said, near perfect all weekend long. It's nice to see. And like I just said, it's nice to see other guys outside of, you know, a Cam, Cam Colmore, CJ Mayhew, seeing some other guys step up as well. Yeah, and those guys stepping up allowed you to have Colmore and Mayhew available in the series finale when, you know, realistically Cincinnati probably didn't have its best arms available, even though they pitched pretty well in that finale trying to still win. Uh, Colmore gets the win. He improves the 3-0 and all in relief this season. CJ Mayhew saved number five to lead the team. So, again, great pitching by the bullpen. They did not allow a run all weekend, did the bullpen, which is uh, over a four-game series, that is, uh, that's is—that's pretty remarkable no matter who you're playing. So, uh, two to not the win by East Carolina. That completes the four-game sweep. Nobody else in the American was able to complete a four-game sweep. You're probably not going to see it a lot this year. So, the Pirates in first place after one week of play. And we'll get into the standings more when we get further into conference play. But first, got to hand out... Our hitter of the week, our pitcher of the week, our rookie of the week, Jonathan. I don't have the numbers in front of me. You might. I do. So for me, I don't even care about the numbers. Hitter of the week is Alec Makarevich. He was the hero on Tuesday. He was the hero on Thursday, and he hit well in uh, in the rest of the games. I believe he had at least one hit in every game, and the walk-off and game-tying home runs and go-ahead home runs. Uh, big-time week for Alec Makarevich. Very big-time. Like you said, very clutch. He was 9 for 21, hit 428 on the week, two home runs, two clutch home runs, I'll say, and six runs batted in throughout the weekend. And he just came up big when he needed him to. You know, without AMAC hitting how we did in those clutch spots, you know, I don't know if ECU's 5-0. and I don't know if they're 4-1. and You just never know. So honorable mention, I mean, we talk about him every week, but Connor Norby, he hit – 10 for 21, a home run, seven RBI, and a walk. Um, I just wanted to mention Zach Agnos. He's not getting a lot of hits, but he is getting a lot of walks. He leads the conference in walks as of right now. He drew seven walks over this week, which I think is pretty impressive. And Josh Moylan also drew five walks on the week. So Josh Moylan hit 357. And I just want to say, and laced an RBI triple on Saturday. Josh Moylan has some wheels maybe we didn't know about. But the offense really, I think, as a whole clicked this weekend or this week. And it was nice to see, you know, everything kind of clicking at the same time, which we've talked about before. We just haven't seen that yet before this week. Pitcher of the week. This was kind of a tough one given how good ECU pitched, especially on the weekend. But I think we're going with Gavin Williams. Just you can't ignore the sheer dominance. Six and two-thirds shutout innings, 13 strikeouts. And he issued a few walks late in the game when he ran out of gas. But, man, his he maintains velocity at 95, 96 deep into the game. And the slider that he has developed, you know, he used to have more of a fastball, more of a – it wasn't 12-6 to 6 curve, but it was more of a loopy curveball and a changeup. Now his slider plays perfectly off his fastball, and it's a real put-away pitch. In the past, he's put away guys on his fastball. And with, with teams just attacking that now – and the slider looks so much like it, I think that's going to rack up the strikeouts, and it has. So Gavin Williams, our pitcher of the week, just another outstanding start for the big man. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it had to be Gavin with the way he pitched. And in addition to his fastball and slider, I believe he's developed a pretty nice changeup as well this year. It's looked good. Really, all of his pitches have looked good, all three, four, whatever he, whatever he has. But, I mean, Garrett Saylor had a good outing. We probably don't win without Garrett Saylor pitching how he did on Friday. Yes, game two, Garrett Saylor. Thursday, right? Third. That oh, was man. the Wizen Hunting game, right? You got me. Yep, that's right. Yep, he was on Thursday. Eight strikeouts. He was dominant. really impressive. Dominant. Really, completely dominant. And there were a couple other guys, but I think we'll save that one for the Rookie of the Week. Yeah, Rookie of the Week, it's hard to believe, but uh, C.J. Mayhew is our Rookie of the Week. You don't think of him as a rookie, but to qualify for this award, you have to be a first- or second-year freshman. So C.J. Mayhew is a second-year freshman. He qualifies for the, the award, and he pitched, what, four times, three times out of the bullpen this week? Yeah, he pitched against uh, Carolina, He pitched, and he pitched in both Saturday games, so he went three. Okay. And I had him at 5.2 innings pitched, he was 1-0 with a save, both of those decisions coming on Saturday. He gave up one hit. He also struck out 13 batters throughout his wow. five five and two-thirds, which is really impressive, and he did not give up a run, and I don't believe gave up any walks either. So just lights out stuff from CJ, and it's nice to see him getting back to this level after he, I think he struggled a little bit there for a, little, there for a couple series. Man, that almost makes me want to go with C.J. Mayhew as a pitcher of the week. But uh, <laughs> we'll stick with our original decision. Mayhew, I'm sure, will get it before the season's over. All right, before we get out of here, um, I'm sure there's some questions on injury updates. Jonathan, Connor Norby left the final game of the series with a uh, quad issue, I believe. What was the update on him post game? Yeah, Coach said um, – and it came out in a D1 baseball article a few weeks ago as well that Norby has been dealing with a quad issue. And Godwin said they just wanted to get him out of that game on Saturday, the second game, and just make sure he's ready for next week. So it doesn't appear to be anything major. I think he's just been nagging it for a little bit, and they're trying not to overdo it, especially with four games and five games in five days, really. Yeah, I'm sure he had to tweak it or something for them to pull him, but with no midweek game, hopefully that allows uh, him to get some rest and calm it down a little bit. And to be honest, you know, Memphis is probably the weakest team left on ECU schedule. So if they need to sit him a day or two this coming weekend, I, I think you can survive it. Uh, the other injury updates quickly, Bryson Worrell, uh, he ended up coming in Saturday's finale, right? For a few innings, even though Cliff Goblin said he's been dealing with a, a back injury. Yeah. And, yeah, when Norby came out of the game on Saturday, Bryson Wall actually went into his spot in the order, and then they went through a little carousel with, you know, who's playing what position on defense. But, yeah, Coach said after the game that Bryson's still not 100%, but he was good enough to go and give him a few innings there on Saturday, which ended up being big. And Bryson, he hit a decent week hitting So when he was on the field. So I'm glad that they didn't rush him this week, and they hopefully can get that back right because a back injury, especially if it's nagging on throughout a long season, that could become problematic. So, But, it, again, doesn't appear to be major. Just seems to be playing on the cautious side, which at this point is probably a smart idea. And another one we'll keep an eye on, Lane Hoover. Um, Jonathan, you asked about him after Saturday's game. He's been out since the Georgia Southern Series in late February with a 
fractured face, I guess is the, the, the way to put it. I mean, we don't know at this point what the exact injury was. So he's out. he's been watching the games behind a net in the dugout, which has been uh, cool to see him back. And, you know, Cliff Godwin basically said he's not sure if he, if he will be back for the Memphis series, but it sounds like there's an outside chance he might be back next weekend if he gets cleared. Yeah, I think it's it was really cool. I noticed it at the Carolina game. I was sitting on the first base side. I looked into the dugout, and I saw Lane Hoover sitting behind that net. So it, it was nice to see him back in the dugout. Um, Coach said after Saturday it was nice to have him back. He's a real energy source. But Coach also said that Lane wants to play this upcoming weekend. But he also mentioned that Lane, he hasn't really been able to eat solid. And I don't know if this was completely – you know, factual or if he was joking around a little bit, but, you know, saying that Lane hasn't been able to eat solid for a while since he got his injury and he's put on, he said, 10 pounds in the like last week since he's been able to start eating normally again. So personally, I think he waited out a little bit longer. Obviously, I don't know the specifics of the injury or how he's doing coming back, but I think it's a trick. The facial injury is tricky to come back from. So I think that they need to be careful not to rush it. Either way, I, whenever he does come back, I don't see him playing four games in three days. They're going to ease him back into it. But when he does come back, he's going to be a welcome addition. Yeah, they they need him for sure. And I don't think you rush him back. But if he's cleared and he's he's mentally ready to go, I think the biggest thing with him is going to be mentally getting back in that batter's box and catching a fly ball again in shallow right field. I mean, after what happened with Connor Norby, it's got to be a little bit, I don't know the word, sketchy mentally just going back out there. Now he's a tough son of a gun from what I've heard, so I think he'll be fine, but it's still tough to get over that. So we'll continue to keep you updated there. Uh, Again, the coming week, just four games, the four-game series versus Memphis Friday doubleheader, and then Saturday and Sunday against the Memphis Tigers. We'll, uh, We'll have a podcast at some point, either Sunday or Monday, recapping that. Did not want to do a podcast after the Elon series. Um, really, I didn't want to talk about what happened in that final game. <laughs> and I didn't want to do a a, a podcast for a two-game series versus Elon. But, Jonathan, it was fun as always, man. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. I'm glad that we were able to talk about a 5-0 and a week. And like you said, I'm glad that we kind of just skipped over the Elon weekend. But I'm glad we're back talking about some wins. I'm glad we're in conference play. And I'll be interested to see how the four-game weekends continue to play out as we get deeper into competition. So I'm looking forward to it. See you next week. All right, guys. For Jonathan, I'm Steven. Thanks for listening to the Hoist of Colors podcast. We'll be back with you next week.